As I was in preparation for the continuation of this message, I read an article by a guy named Joel Stein who wrote for the Los Angeles Times. And what he wrote was disheartening. He said, heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in the 17th century. But heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by because they only have to be better than hell. Obviously, Joel wasn't here last week. Or hasn't spent too much time in Revelation 21 and 22. The problem with heaven is certainly not that it's overrated. The problem, if anything, is that it's underrated, misunderstood, and unappreciated. When we read, as we began to last week, of the glories of the new heaven, the new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, we don't get images of people hanging around on clouds playing harps. In fact, that image comes nowhere from Scripture. What we want to do is to acquaint ourselves with what God has revealed to us about the truth. Now, last week we began this journey of discovery. And admittedly, we only skimmed the surface, and even when we finish this, we will have only skimmed the surface. There's no way that our finite minds can grasp the fullness and the glory and the majesty of what is to come, an eternity with God in heaven. The greatest poet cannot capture its grandeur in words. The greatest artist cannot paint its majesty on canvas. Paul was right when he said, No eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, but God has prepared for those who love him. There's something bigger and bolder and grander than you and I could ever ask for or even imagine. And so last week we began to look in Revelation 21. And we didn't get very far, but that's okay because we got deep. And that's a pretty good trade-off. And so we'll continue this just as long as it takes in order for us to understand and grasp the truths contained here in Revelation 21 in the first few verses of 22. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we indeed stand on holy ground again as we consider that which you have in store for us, that which you've created and only you could have imagined. And so, Lord... Would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us? Open our minds to experience things that they haven't experienced before. Open our ears, Lord, so that we would truly hear what you have to say to us and give us a responsive spirit that at the end of all this, we might be able to say yes to you in whatever you're saying to us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Last week, we got through verses 1, 2, and 3. If you noticed, I was rather ambitious last week, and the scripture text that you had uh, went from 21-1 to 22-6. We didn't quite make it. We won't quite make it today. Revelation 21, we're going to begin by looking at verses 4 and 5. 
And here we read, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Nearly every funeral service that I do, I quote from this passage in Revelation 21. And I think the the reason why is, is pretty obvious. Because we understand, we've lived long enough to know that life can be painful. It is filled with tears and loss. It is filled with hurt. It is filled with grief. Even when we become Christians... Even after we have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and and the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us and to infill us, this life still has more than its fair share of pains. And even, even when someone who loves Jesus and is destined to spend eternity with him in heaven, even when they die, there's still pain for us. Oh, there's joy. There is joy in knowing That our mother, our father, our grandparent, our child, our close friend, our former classmate, whomever it was, that they have a home with God in heaven and and that this life is, is not over for them. In fact, it's just beginning. And yet there's a pain, a separation, a loss that we experience and brings with it tears. If your experience was anything like mine, growing up was a time filled with skinned knees and scraped elbows and all kinds of uh, mishaps that come with being a kid. So you'd always run home to, to mama. And they'd clean the wound, put a bandage on it, give you a kiss and wipe away the tears. And that worked for a while. Until the next time there was a skinned knee or a scraped elbow. Or after you become a teenager and it's now a broken heart. There are more tears to flow. Those tears have to get wiped away again and again and again and again and again. Now I want you to notice something. One of the things that we, when we're introduced to what heaven's going to be like, what our eternal life is going to be like, is the fact that that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, what's the difference? When God wipes away our tears in heaven, it'll be forever. It's not a going back again and again and again. The scraped knees, the, 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 uh, the skinned elbows, the broken hearts, those are gone. Never again will tears stain our faces. Never again will sobs cause our body to shake. Why? Because all the things that break our hearts, that cause us pain, that bring us to tears... All those things will have passed away with the old order of things, with the old earth. They will be gone. Now that's hard for us to imagine. Because we know life is full of pain. We know there's suffering involved. It is the world in which we live, the fallen world in which we live. 
But what we're told here is that there's coming a time when all that changes. When never again will we cry because every tear, every tear, every tear will be wiped away. One of the things we discovered last week is that life as we know it is going to be changed. And the laws of physics as we now experience them, those will be changed. The fact that there'll be no more sea, our life here on this earth is tied to the sea. You know, our bodies are are mostly water. Can you imagine a time when tear ducts are unnecessary? There's not the water that flows. Some of you have an, I have dry eyes. Some of you have eyes. They run water all the time. Imagine a time. That's not going to happen. It's going to be different because your bodies are going to be different, which we'll discover a little bit later about that. But what we see here is that death and mourning and crying and pain have passed away. And the promise is that God will make everything new. New in kind. New in quality. In other words, God's not going to come in and do a simple remodeling job in your life. That's not what God's going to do. He's not going to come in and just slap a little paint on the walls. He's not going to come in and just put up some wood paneling. He's not going to come into your life and just change the shingles out for some architectural shingles and put a little shrubbery in the front. God's business is to make everything new. Now, here is the mind-blowing part of it. If you go back and you look at the tense of the verb in Greek, it is in the present tense, which is continuous. He's continually making everything new. The new car smell wears off after a while, doesn't it? I mean, you get that new car, and it's got that new car smell, but everything new. No dents, no dings, no scrapes, no scratches. Behold, I make everything new. A constant remaking, renewing, refreshing each and every moment. I'm making everything continually new. It never wears out. Now, maybe this Maybe something triggers in your mind. Is God able to do that? Absolutely. Think back to the Exodus. What did it say about the sandals and the clothes that they wore when they wandered in the wilderness? Does anybody remember? They never wore out. That was a glimpse, a picture, a glimmer of what God is able to do. And in the new heaven, in the new earth, he's continually making everything new. There is a perpetual newness and freshness to life eternal. That doesn't sound like the boring thing that Joel Stein had in mind, does it? Hanging around on clouds and playing harps. Instead, perpetual newness. Now, one of the things that's interesting to note, if you, if you saw there in the verse... The angel reminds John again. He says, now write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, this is my conjecture. I don't know this for a fact. 
But sometimes I have I've been taking notes and got so caught up in what was going on. The, the lecture, the class became so interesting that I forgot to write the notes down. And, and, and this is what went through my mind as I read this. Imagine getting a, a, the curtains parted and you're able to see all that God is going to do. And it is so mind-blowing. That an angel has to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, remember, you're supposed to be writing this down. Don't get this. Please get this. And why is it so important? We mentioned this last week. You cannot desire what you cannot imagine. We need that image of what heaven's going to be like. We need that image of what God has in store for us so that we crave it, so that we desire it, so that we long for it, and so that we live for it. We need that. And so write this down, because what I'm telling you is true, it's trustworthy. You can count on it. You can bank on it. Write it down. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I and the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who's thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. I want you to notice something. These words come from he who sits on the throne. So it was not an angel speaking. But it was Jesus himself speaking. And what he says is it's done. It is done. Have you ever heard Jesus say anything similar to that? On the cross, exactly. On the cross, he said, it is finished. And even though there are different words in the Greek, they mean virtually the same thing. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What did he mean by that? Everything that was done, everything that was necessary for salvation was done. The blood that was necessary to cover our sins was spilled, poured out on the cross by Jesus. He did everything necessary for us to have and inherit eternal life. Jesus did it all. When he died on the cross, everything necessary for salvation was complete. It is finished. It's done. And now we hear that from the cross And here it comes from the throne. We hear it from the throne. It is done. Now, what is the difference? What is the nuance? This is the culmination of Jesus' saving work. God's people would now fully experience salvation forever. And this is key. I came to know Jesus Christ as a college student. When I surrendered my life to Christ, when I received what God had to offer, when I accepted by grace through faith that Jesus Christ died for me on the cross and that he was my only hope of salvation, and I put my faith in him, I became a Christian. The Holy Spirit came to indwell me. I was at that moment as saved as I will ever get. 
That's true for any of us who become Christians. We were, we were as saved, when we were saved, we were saved as we were ever going to get because it's not, wasn't based on us. It's based on what Jesus did for us. So I was saved at that moment. But you know what I've experienced since then? Well, I've sinned again more than once, innumerable times. Some of that sin I've stumbled and fallen into, and the others, quite sadly, I've walked into with my eyes wide open and embraced. I've lied. I've been dishonest. There are lots of things that I have done since then, both externally and internally, that I'm not proud of. I didn't lose my salvation. I just struggled with sin. And and the Apostle Paul understood this. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things that I don't want to do are the things I end up doing. There's that struggle. You and I know that struggle with sin. Now, even though I'm saved, I have not experienced my salvation fully. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day when I will experience it completely and fully. I will know it fully. This is what John wrote in 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now, right now, because we believed in Jesus Christ, we're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. In other words, this struggle that you go through in life even though you're saved, even though you're in, even though you are a child of God, the struggle that you go through right now is going to come to an end. There's going to be a culmination to all that, and you're going to be like him. Now, how are you going to be like him? It doesn't mean that you're going to be God. It doesn't mean that you're going to get to sit on the throne. That's not what it means. It means that you will have a purity of spirit, and you will have an immortal, imperishable body just like that of jesus himself things are going to change that's the good news things are going to change it's not going to be like this forever the struggles that you face in this life you will have no more i'm making everything new he says it's done And he has the authority to do it. Notice what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. For any of you that have any familiarity with the Greek alphabet, perhaps it's even because of fraternity or sorority life, but you know a little bit about the Greek alphabet, you may know that Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So when Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, what he's saying is, I'm no Johnny-come-lately God. I didn't just show up when I was born in Bethlehem. I am eternally existent with the Father. From all ages past to all ages to come, We're one. Now, this is a huge mystery. 
And I got to tell you, we're, we're actually going to be dealing with this. My plan was to deal with this a little later this year, but it looks like my plans are changing because this series is taking just a just slightly longer than I had anticipated. And so we may have to move that back. We're actually going to look at the Trinity a little bit later. But that's one of those things that just blows your mind. Because we know from Scripture that we have one God, one God and one God alone. That's it. And yet he's revealed himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has eternally been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's eternally, and he will eternally be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, how do you put that together? How do you have one God who's revealed himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I gotta tell you, people through the centuries have tried to figure this thing out, tried to explain it, tried to give it in some concrete way so that we could understand that. You probably, probably the one you're most familiar with would be St. Patrick and the shamrock. Three leaves, but one clover. And that's the way he explained the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three leaves here, but one clover. Other people have used circles and interlocked them. But I've got to tell you, no matter what we do as human beings to try to explain the Trinity, we're never going to get it right. I mean, there's no way that we can fully explain it. Why? Because we can't fully understand it. But this is what Jesus says. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Don't doubt this. This is not something new. This is God's plan of the ages. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I was there at creation. I am here at new creation. And I will be forever making things new. That's not all he said in those, that verse. It's packed. He who said it's done. He who said I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Goes on to make a promise and an offer. To him who's thirsty. I will give to drink without cost. In the spring of the water of life. This is spoken from the future. This is, this is John seeing this in the future. But remember, Jesus has said, John, write this down. This is trustworthy and true. You can count on it. People need to hear this because you're going to explain to them this vision. And they're going to get a glimpse of what this new life can be like. And some people are going to want this. And so you need to tell them what it's all about. How do they get it? How do they receive it? To him who's thirsty, let him come and drink. That's a picture of redemption. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of the offer that God has laid out before each and every one of us. And perhaps when you heard that, your mind went back to some other references that are similar. Rewind all the way back to Zechariah chapter 13 and we read this. On that day, the prophet Zechariah says, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. A fountain that will cleanse from sin and impurity. A fountain 
living water. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and he who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is a promise. And an offer. Jesus said it is done. Jesus paid the price for our salvation on the cross. He rose from the grave to show that he was victorious over death and hell. And he welcomes us into our eternal home. Not based upon our own goodness. On our own effort. For he himself paid the price. Salvation was costly for him, but it's free for all who would receive it. And today, we're going to stop right there because we need to hear this. This was so crucial, so important that Jesus broke into the angel's speech and said, John, write this down. To all who are thirsty, to those who recognize their spiritual need, to those who've been to every refreshment stand known to man, trying to find something to quench the thirst, personal goodness, religions, sexual satisfaction, achievement in life. Accumulation of money and wealth. All those things that promised to satisfy us, to refresh us. And yet we come away with those things thirsty. The emptiness not filled, the the void still there. And what Jesus says is there's a reason there's a thirst in you. There's a reason there's a hunger in you. There's a reason there's a vacuum in you. Because God's design is that he fill that. And he alone. And if you recognize that you can't fill it, that no one else can fill it. If you recognize your thirst, if you recognize your hunger and you come. There was a spring, a spring of the water of life that will meet your deepest need. And some of you have come here today terribly, terribly thirsty. You've been looking for the answer to that thirst all your life. You've been wondering if there's anything that could fill up that need in you. And some of you have tried to fill it up with people, men and women. And what you discovered was you were more empty after those relationships than you ever were before. 
Some of you have tried to fill that with drugs and alcohol. I'm not trying to be condemning or critical of you. But what you recognized was, it didn't matter how many times I snorted, how many times I shot up, how many times I smoked. When I came to the end, I was still empty. Some of you have tried to satisfy that by getting more stuff. Your philosophy had been, he who dies with the most toys wins. If I can just get a bigger car, a nicer house, and a nicer place, then I'll be satisfied. And what you discovered was that you were just as empty once you got all those things. And you wondered why. God knew you'd wonder. Jesus said, John, write this down. Because in 2011, there's going to be someone sitting in a worship center in Greensboro, Georgia. Who's going to need to hear this. Whoever's thirsty, come and drink freely. No charge. Price has been paid. Drink freely from the water of life. And if that's you, and God's been waiting for you to come. And Jesus is here this morning to fill that need.